typically that would involve me going up and knocking somebody on the forehead and say, hey, we're having a problem. I need to figure out what the problem is. Let's sit down and have a discussion. You tell me what the problem is, and I'll see what I can do to fix it. And if I'm not the problem, then we need to, we need to address your behavior. Because people will deny that it's race-based, but when you can, can show them that they're treating you differently than they are someone else, sometimes it's very subtle, tone of voice, uh, mannerisms, et cetera. And sometimes it's very blatant. And a lot of times people will use humor to try to uh hey it's breaking barriers the diversity equity inclusion and belonging podcast we're here for real talk we're not afraid to go there and we want you to come away emboldened and energized to take action and make change we believe our diversity our differences when joined together by a common set of ideals makes us stronger when i set out to help someone uh, it is my intention to do just that i'm not trying to do anything other than meet somebody at their humanity your world has changed, but your dreams shouldn't have to. That's why Kirkwood is your next best step. With affordable, flexible, and close-to-home options, now's a great time to start or finish your Kirkwood degree. Learn more at kirkwood.edu slash findyourfuture. Displaced or discouraged at work, Kirkwood can help you learn a new skill or totally reinvent yourself for a brand new career. With so many flexible and affordable options, you can get back on track fast. Learn more at kirkwood.edu slash find your future. All right, all right. What up, what up, world? What up? This is, we're back for another episode of Top Ranks Breaking Barriers, the DEIMB podcast brought to you by our five-star presenting sponsor, Kirkwood Community College and our silver sponsor, PG Cares. I'm your co-host, Anthony Arrington. I am joined by my co-host, Nick Ford. And Joy, how are you guys doing? Joy Briscoe, how are you? Good, good. Excited. Excited for today. Good, good. Another good episode we got coming. Nick, why don't you tell us who's joining us today? We we got some great, 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 uh, great folks with us. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to anytime I can talk to other Navy vets, you know, us old people, us old gray people. Um, and Nick, our guest, our guest said, "Speak for yourself." <laughs> they're, they're, they're both older than me by a little bit. <laughs> Not by much. Not by much. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Dr. John Cordell uh, is retired from the Navy as a captain in 2013 after 30 years of service. Uh, he commanded the USS Oscar Austin DDG-79 and USS San Jacinto, the CG-56. He earned the U.S. Navy League's Captain John Paul Jones Award for Inspirational Leadership in 2010. He is recognized with the 2019 Service Navy Association and U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings Author of the Year Award for his extensive writing on leadership, crew endurance, manpower, and diversity. And he doesn't have it in here, but he was also my boss once on the, the uh, <laughs> hearing us That's very important. That's, right, that's, uh-huh. that's the top bullet. Yeah. yeah, that's important. We're getting, we're getting all the blackmail information and it was, from me. It was back in the... <laughs> 90s oh so hence the old part um <laughs> keith green uh is a retired service warfare officer who sued from oh i know this is wrong well they're really trying to make you old here they have 1875 to 84 <laughs> <laughs> feels like 1875. that's 1975 to 84 as enlisted in 85 to 97 as an officer some remained to, to have someone enlisted some officer retiring as lieutenant commander he was a communications officer on the USS Bogie, uh, followed by four department head tours as engineering officer, executive officer on Hydrofoil, and import training officer with Desron, which is a destroyer squadron for you uh, non-Navy types, and a base telephone officer down at Jacksonville. He is the author of Black Officer, White Navy, which will be published as a revised edition coming this year. 
welcome to both of you and you know, I'm really excited about this. So, all right. Great. Thanks for having us. Yep, no problem. It, I, I will warn you all, it is very dangerous to have two nukes in the same area oh, together. So, as <laughs> engineer types, you know. Well, listen, I'll I start off, actually, if you don't mind. Uh, Keith, I, I wanted to ask you a question. I was reading your background and, and your, your, your book, and I was uh, obviously the book just came, Black Officer, White Navy. So I haven't had a chance to read the book, but I read the summary on it, but was reading uh, some of your background. And I actually was looking at your questions that you wanted to ask. And I was like, these are some good questions. But one thing I didn't see on your list of questions that you suggested was really more about like mental, like your mental state. I was listening to an interview you did uh, a few years back with um, uh Quentin, Quentin's close-up, well-known journalist in South Carolina. You were doing an interview with him, and you were talking about when you discovered that you were getting, when equipment was not coming to you as a manager, you were ordering equipment, and your, your white counterparts were getting equipment much faster than you. You put a spreadsheet together, and you figured out that you were being racially targeted, and you weren't being treated fairly. You kept coming to work, and you were getting so stressed out, you said, that you could literally grab a, a chunk of your hair and pull it out because you were working so hard and you were, you were so stressed out that stood out to me because obviously you kept going to work knowing that you were being discriminated against. So I, I'm, I'm curious about your mindset and how you were able to get through that. And what, what could you tell folks that that allowed you to get through those days? Well, I watched a lot of the other black officers in the Mayport basin, uh, throwing in the towel and quitting. Not just black, it was white officers too. Uh, back in that time period, time period, the surface warfare Navy was eating its young. And a lot of people just could not handle the pressure. And I just did not want to be one of those guys. I knew I was doing everything that I could do to succeed, but there were people actively working, trying to prevent me from succeeding. It made no sense to me that no one would help me because I was making it very plain. I don't have a problem sharing... Uh, I think there's a there's an issue. But it didn't make any sense to me that I couldn't get my CO, XO, the other department heads. No one uh, would help me. So I finally decided uh, either I'm going to self-destruct or I'm just going to have to fight back. So what I did was, and I'll tell you, I was on my way to work one day and I decided I was going to quit. I was driving into work. It was about five o'clock, 530. And I said, I just can't do this anymore. And I was going to drive down and sit on the beach for about an hour and a half. And then I was going to go into the squadron and throw in the towel. But I said, no, my father would kill me if I did that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm just going to fight back. So I put that spreadsheet together because I could feel my body consuming itself from the inside. Uh, and that made no sense because they, the guy that was doing that, my supply officer, was hurting the entire ship. He's hurting the mission of the ship. He's hurting national security. If we didn't deploy, that domino would fall, and then someone else would have to step up, and it was going to be a domino effect. So I said, I'm just going to find a way to show them what's happening here because they just think I'm a whiner. You know, I, I can't, you know, order the parts correctly or whatever. They just thought I was a whiner. Everybody blew it off. But when I put that spreadsheet together, it just blew me away because it showed at every step of the process that my stuff was being slow-tracked. It would sit for days. It would get canceled. They told me to resubmit another requisition. And I had it all right there on one sheet that anybody could see. And when I presented that to the captain, and he and the supply officer were both from Texas. So when I presented that to the captain, I said, look, I've been telling you for weeks now that I need help and my parts aren't getting ordered. 
This shows you exactly what's happening. If we don't deploy on time, you're going to have to explain that to somebody. And you're not going to be able to blame me because I've been asking for help and I've not been getting it. So what are you going to do now? Because my next step was, if he blew me off again, I was going to take that spreadsheet and walk over to the squadron and knock on the uh, uh, material officer's door and say, hey, we got a problem on this ship. I've done everything I can to fix it, but I'm not going down because these people are not going to support me. So uh, the captain looked at that spreadsheet, called the supply officer up there. He couldn't, have, he couldn't answer why I wasn't ordering my parts. So that turned everything around. Didn't help me a whole lot because now I've got all this work coming down on me that I wasn't able to do. And the captain wants me to update that spreadsheet every day. And then he calls me up and tells me, I want you to gather all the other department heads together and teach them how to do this because I want one from them every day too. So now everyone's workload has increased because nobody would understand that I was being treated differently than everybody else was. Well, you can imagine how the other department heads felt about that, but none of them stepped forward to say, hey, Keith's having a problem. We need to look at what's going on here. So you think about that, it's it's that example, you know, that when there's issues of, of, of racism, if there's issues of discrimination or inequitable treatment, it doesn't just hurt that oppressed person or that oppressed group. It has an impact on everybody. Yeah. And it sounds like... Well, absolutely. Now, yeah, now the cascading effect would have been, had I just thrown in the towel and walked away from that job, there were four additional jobs that I did very well that would not have happened because I was no longer in the talent pool. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Wow. We always think like the military, right? How can there be any issues? We all work together. We're all a team. And, and then you hear the stories. And, and it's just kind of, it was eye-opening for me as a young sailor, right? Like, because especially the nuke program, there weren't a lot of diverse people in the nuke program either. And at the time, there were no women. Um, and then you start seeing the real-life experiences of people. And to me, that was an eye-opening moment because you don't think that, oh, come on, they're not doing it because that. You must you know, have another other issue, right? And they're very good, especially back in the 80s and 90s, of saying of, of making it look like there was another issue. How did you get through that? that that's my curiosity because, you know, I, I have a really good friend, Lem Lee, who was an electrical officer on a carrier with me, and he talks about this a lot with me and, you know, when we talk on the side, and it's how do you overcome that where they, they do everything they can to make it look like it's anything but what it really is. Well, the first thing I would do is I would assume that it is not racism. There's something else going on here because it doesn't make sense that they're treating me this way simply because of the color of my skin. So I would start trying to eliminate every single thing that it could have been other than that. And typically that would involve me going up and knocking somebody on the forehead and say, hey, we're having a problem. I need to figure out what the problem is. Let's sit down and have a discussion. You tell me what the problem is, and I'll see what I can do to fix it. And if I'm not the problem, then we need to we need to address your behavior. Because people will deny that it's race-based, but when you can, can show them that they're treating you differently than they are someone else, sometimes it's very subtle, tone of voice, uh, mannerisms, et cetera. And sometimes it's very blatant. And a lot of times people will use humor to try to uh, disguise that. But I just had a, I just had the direct approach. We're having a problem. I need to figure out what it is. Uh, if we can't figure it out, we're going to have to figure out a way to work around it. But uh, we're on the same team, so we need to work together. So, so John, did you yeah, oh, go, ahead. go ahead? Go ahead, Joy. In, in going through your experience, Keith, John, when you were in, did you ever go through times where you saw that happening and, and being an ally needed to speak up? Now, I know how you two met. 
So I can't wait till we get to that story later on about allyship on LinkedIn, right? Who would have thought? But uh, but even in the t- in in the tenure of your career, were there ever moments where you saw that and you were just like, I can't believe this is what I'm seeing, and you had to speak up, or did that co- that voice to do that come later on in your journey? Um, you know, I'm kind of ashamed to admit that it came later on in my journey. I think, uh, you know, I, I grew up as, as uh, you saw in our, in our discussions, uh, sort of insulated from from that from that point of view, not necessarily from you know interacting with other races and and, and you know certainly maybe it's a mixed uh, mixed group. But if you're coming at it from my point of view, I never experienced that growing up, and I never experienced what Keith had to put up with, and so. I can think of a couple of times when I was in command or in leadership positions when maybe the issue was that was racism, but it didn't come up into my point of view because I wasn't uh, attuned to that. I was like Keith mentioned, you know, what are all the other things it could be? And uh, and you just don't like to think of that about people that that might be the cause. And I can think of one specific example where, uh, uh, you know, a young black sailor was having some troubles and came to me as an XO uh, being late. Uh, uh, not turning in stuff on time, and it came to light that he's a single parent and struggling, and uh, and but then there was one single parents that weren't struggling, and uh, and so you know that sort of to me said, well maybe it's not you know maybe he's not in front of me because of his color, uh, but then you look back at who his chain of command was, uh, they were all white, and uh, and they all were quick to dismiss that there was any racial piece to this, but again. Why is it that he can't solve this problem? What what's not helping him? And uh, is there more to this? And it just were questions that I asked at the time. And uh, and I sort of you know I think he didn't go to captain's mass or gave him some extra instruction and some some help. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm not convinced that the reason he wasn't there, the reason he was there, and some of the others weren't, uh, was uh, had something to do with race. Yeah, that's can a- I take it back on that for a minute? Please do, please do, Keith. Mm-hmm. When I was a mass gentleman down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, I saw this happen firsthand the way young black sailors were treated differently than white sailors with the same issues. The young black sailors would very seldom get a break and they'd be brought up to captain's mass for one thing or another. And they would talk about the white sailors that were 15 minutes late for work and never got written up, never had any problems. But they're late one time and all of a sudden they're standing in front of the captain's mass. And they would be able to document with names and dates, et cetera, et cetera, and showing that they were being treated differently. I had two captains down there, and both of them would dismiss that, saying, you're just trying to get out of being responsible and held accountable. But I, I talked to these guys every day for two years, and I saw it firsthand, even the way the investigations were done. So, yeah, there was, in fact, uh, people being pe- being treated differently because of the color of their skin. That's one of the things that led me to become an equal opportunity program specialist because I had to do the equal opportunity quality indicators every quarter uh, at the end of uh, you know uh, uh, a quarter, and it showed that blacks were consistently being punished more harshly and more often than the whites that had committed the same offenses. And that's been true throughout the military for uh, for decades. Right, and and I would just add that. Uh... You know, I often hear when Keith or other folks say something like that, the first response from a lot of leaders is, well, they're just playing the race card, right? Um, and, uh, or they're playing the victim. And, uh, you know, someone commented to me uh, the other day, watching one of Keith's videos, that uh, oh, Keith seems to have a chip on his shoulder. Um, and my response was, well, maybe somebody put that chip on his shoulder, mm, you know? Yeah. Uh, 
And uh, so, yeah, he does, but uh, but he doesn't have it because he just made it up. Um, unless you have, you know, the challenge for uh, someone like me and Nick is if you, if you have not been in that situation, you probably can't really understand what it's like. And, uh, and so it's easy to dismiss it. So, John, let's let's talk about that. I'm glad you brought well, that I, up. I want to say something quick, though. Yeah. You know, John, I love when people say that, that they're playing the victim because my answer is, you ever think maybe they are? Yeah. Maybe um, are. Right. right. I, I think that's a possible. I think that's a possibility, but I don't think it should be your initial response to everything. Right. right. But it's just um, like, that's Nick's sarcasm. That's my sarcasm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Works with trauma-induced kids all the time, and and she gets the same thing we see it there with the kids. Right. It's like, wow, well, you know, they're just playing the victim. Well, they are a victim. <laughs> right. But right. and, and if in their mind they are the victim, then that's a piece of the puzzle too. You know. So, John, um, you actually stood up, and, and Joy mentioned it earlier, and I kind of want to take us there, and we talk a little bit about allyship and, and the, the coincidental way in which you met Keith online. He was he was making a comment, and, and uh, there was another Marine that was bashing him, and and you stood up for him, and that's how you two met. You, he liked your, your comments. You were standing up for him online. He liked your comment, and I always like how people get these these cool ways that they meet each other. So I thought right. that was pretty cool. But what I'm really curious about is, is John, you've had a you've had a great career. You know, I've read your background. You've had a wonderful career. Uh, Middle aged white man, you don't need this. You could walk away and you could go fishing and and live in your big house and have nice Christmases with your family. And why did you stand up for Keith? And why do you do this? Uh, you know, that, that you sound like my wife now who says, uh, <laughs> uh, leave well enough alone sometimes, but, uh, not Keith specifically, but in general, um, you know, it's one of those things where, um, I, I retired and, uh, and got involved with writing a lot, as you know, they could look back at Manning fatigue and stuff like that. Um, and then when I, uh, took the job here back at headquarters, um, I was starting to get a little bit of pushback on things I was writing. And I decided that maybe it was my best interest to quit uh, and not rock the boat. And then a couple of master chiefs that I had known tangentially, not really worked with directly, but they said, hey, people are reading your stuff. You need to keep it up. And uh, and specifically, the enlisted folks were reading. And I'm like, wow, I, I had no idea. And then uh, so I uh, proceedings reached out and said, hey, we need somebody to write one article a month uh, to keep our online presence fresh. And so I started doing that. Um, and... Uh, but it was mainly mainly about you know fatigue and manning and the same stuff I've been writing about, uh, and then it was kind of Keith's, uh, uh, and certainly a lot of us got caught up in the events of 2020 with you know Black Lives Matter and, and uh, George Foreman and that group. But uh, but you know a lot of folks just went back to business as usual after that, and I think it was Keith that kind of knocked me off the tracks and said, "Hey, there's more to this than just a couple of protests and go back to work." And then uh, um, I found that as a uh, just happened to be a white man uh, I'm in a space where a lot of folks don't talk about this and sometimes I've had a couple of cases where you know Keith would not have gotten in the room if not for me and there's been a couple of cases where I wouldn't have gotten in the room except for Keith you know um, and so now we kind of have a little thing if we get invited to talk then we, we toss out the other guy's name and usually they invite both of us nice. and, uh, and that allows the audience to hear the same story from two perspectives and so I found that uh that, you know, one plus one makes three. And uh, and we each do stuff on our own, you know. Um, but I also, you know, all of my work, it kind of aligns, you know, why do I write about fatigue and manpower? It's not because the officers are overworked. It's because the junior enlisted uh, that we're trying so hard to retain 
um, are walking out the door because they don't have a culture that makes them feel like they're worthy and uh, and productive and, and included. And so, uh, um, but, you know, Keith has taught me a whole new vocabulary, things like microaggression. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I've uh, read some stuff that a lot of my peers won't even read, you know, by uh, uh, Dr. Kendall or Kendi uh, mm-hmm. on anti-racism, stuff like that. And uh, so it's just the more I dig, the deeper I find uh, new stuff to talk about. And uh, as long as people will listen and maybe, you know, I, I get enough uh, encouragement online, you know, people follow. I didn't know that you could follow someone and not be connected to them. But I figured that out the other day. So I'm, 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 uh, I'm hitting the follow button and the connect button now. But, uh, you know, I would say about once a month, somebody comes over LinkedIn and says, hey, I've been following you for a while. Nice. Either can you help me with this or, or just I like what you're doing. That keeps you motivated with the junior folks are reading it. And maybe encourage them to speak up. Well, that's what it's about. It's about making that connection right, and you and you seeking to understand. And, and then, and we were talking offline before you jumped on about how you're using your leverage as a, as a white man. I know when Nick and I started this company, we brought joy in, but we talk about that a, a lot. You know, um, there are spaces I can't get into because I'm not white. Let's just call it what it is. Right. And there are spaces that Nick can't get into because he is white. Um, Joy's a veteran. Joy's a woman. She's a black woman. There, those things matter. Uh, we all want to get to the same space, but if we've got to leverage those experiences to get there, so it's really cool yeah. to hear how how you two connected. Yeah, it's funny too because in Iowa, I am definitely not oh what God. what people think of when they think of veteran. Like even when I sometimes if I park in the veteran parking lot at our grocery store, I, I get I actually maybe a month ago someone followed me into the grocery store and and they asked me questions because I they weren't sure that I was actually a veteran which oh my god so so the thing about it is like you have to you know like who why do you think you have the authority to question me about being a vet now the thing is I served almost 16 years so most people here I've I've you know I've typically except for you all except for all of you <laughs> But I've typically, yeah, yeah, I've, I've typically, you know, so I'm, I'm very comfortable in that. And so they asked me, what was my MOS, actually, what they said. And I was like, well, I'm Air Force, so I have an AFSC. But what was your MOS? Because I always work joint service. So right away, they were like, oh, you know, you know, the, the typical lingo or whatever have you. But it was just such an interesting thing because they literally, they drove by when I parked there. They got out, followed me in, and then asked me that. And so I... And you have that moment of where you have to decide what kind of day it is for you. <laughs> is, it, is it a day where Thankfully, you I'm are next to you at the time? Because they, they get I know, Nick. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. So here's another example of Iowa. I don't know if you've seen it where you're at with the VA. You'll go to the hospital and you'll see a, a female vet, a woman vet walking through there. And you can count the number of times someone either looks at them like, why are you here? Or what, what branch is your husband in? Yeah, uh, wow. I heard that. Yeah. And, you know, they don't do that much. I think I'm getting the reputation down there. They don't do that around me anymore. But mm-hmm. uh, but when they do, I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Right. Well, that's what, what I, was, I was complaining to Keith the other day that uh, that I was you know been working on a couple of issues uh, the, the uh, you know with him together, but the renaming of the status, the idea of having beards for our service members, um, and I'm like, man, it's just like it's like really pushing sand up a hill uh, in this diversity space. And he looks at me. And he's like, really? 
how long have you been involved in this? And I was like, about a year. He's like, welcome to my world, you know. Well, um, that's important. You're pushing I love it. Quick I love it. Right, right, right. I love it. I love it. This is a question I want to talk about because, you know, I, I know that there, there aren't many of us pushing for it, but there's enough, that, you know, pushing for renaming of the Stennis, pushing for the Uniform uh, Code of Military Justice to include racism in it as a, as a, as a criminal act, as an unlawful act. Um, I mean, there's other ones too. We go on and, and we go back, you know, historically uh, to, uh, to Admiral Borda who was really trying to make strides in this, where did the wheels fall off and how do we get them back on? Cause something definitely <laughs> happened there where things were happening, progressing. And then so help, help our audience. So, to help our audience out. so the Stennis is a k- aircraft carrier, the John C. Stennis. If you go back historically and look at his background, uh, it's not pretty from definitely from an equity perspective. I'll just say that uh, there's a lot okay. of, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and there, he's not the only one that a ship's named after that has that history. So uh, part of this, this is part of renaming. So that's part of it. Uniform Code of Military Justice. So basically when you join the military, your legal system now becomes Uniform Code of Military Justice. So things like unauthorized absence or even murder is included there. I mean, right. punishments are included in there. Um, not to poke anyone in the eye recently, but classified material mishandling. Things like that are all in there, right? So, um, but there's nothing in there really about racism or hate or any of those actions. Other than there's a few things hidden away, like you can't have openly blatant tattoos out that are like clan signs, things like that, or swastikas, but, but there's nothing really covering it. And I know Keith for a long time has been pushing on this and, you know, he's kind of brought along folks like John, I, and other individuals, and there's been some great writings on it. I think you read one of them, Mm -hmm. but, but at some point in the, during our tenure, there was an Admiral, Admiral Borda that was really trying to push things. Mm -hmm. And of course that (coughs) kind of fell to the wayside when, when he moved on and, and just kind of curious, like from your point of views, because you're more involved in it now, still live on the East Coast than I am out here in Iowa, but how do we get those, why did those wheels fall off and how do we get them back? Or is it just part well, of what we see in, in general now where history just keeps repeating itself? Things things go in cycles. And 1988 was kind of a low point in the terms of that cycle. Uh, 1988, the CNO uh, announced that there was widespread bias and discrimination against blacks in the uh, in the military. And then uh, that was in June. And then I think it was in October or November, he announced that there was widespread bias in promotion. So the top Navy officer is saying that we have widespread bias against our uh, black service members, and we're going to put together this plan, CNO's study group on you know race race in, uh, in the Navy. And Admiral Border was chief of Naval personnel, I think, at that point. So he's intimately involved in gathering all that information. So he knew where all the bodies were buried. He knew they did uh, surveys of white service members, and they found that they harbored negative feelings and perceptions of black people. So a couple of years later, in 1990, there was a, a report that came out in All Hands magazine that talked about Admiral Border trying to fix all these issues, et cetera. And then in 1991, you had the tailhook scandal. So there was a lot of pressure being applied to the Navy uh, pushback because it wasn't called woke back then. It was called political correctness. And in 1988, that's when uh, Ronald Reagan named a uh, an aircraft carrier uh, for John Stennis. So you had Reagan pushing back against affirmative action, naming an aircraft carrier for a segregationist, and you had the top Navy officer saying there was widespread bias and discrimination. So fast forward to uh, 91, 92, uh, 
you start with all the tail hook stuff. And then a few years later, Admiral Borda committed suicide because he was getting a lot of pushback from the retired admiral's lobby for trying to change things, for pushing for women, et cetera, et cetera. And when he was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he was a CNO, he was about to be interviewed by Colonel David Hackworth and somebody else about some some little, you know, insignificant V's on his ribbon uh, bar from when he was in the uh, Vietnam arena. And he was under so much pressure, I believe he just took himself off the planet. He wrote a couple of notes, one to his family and one to his sailors. And I don't think either one of those notes have ever been released. But it was just a confluence of things. And everybody saw what happened to Borda. And I think with this Task Force One Navy thing, all the same pushback from the same quarter started to happen. So the, the Task Force One Navy thing sort of fizzled out. You have all this pushback against the anti-extremism stand down, against wokeness, et cetera. It's like a sine wave. You have high cycles and low cycles. And I think we have, have hit a low cycle. I've been pushing for several years now to get the Navy to release the formal discrimination complaint statistics because we don't know what happened in the Obama years. But I can tell you in 2017, the first year of the Trump presidency, the number of substantiated complaints went from an average of 20% down to 6%, which is exactly what happened in 1988. The year that that report came out, the uh, I'll, well, I'll give you the three years that are, are important. 1987, 1988, 1989. 1987, the substantiation rate was 6%. 1988, it was 3%. And a year after the CNO said it was widespread bias and discrimination, it dropped to 0%. You had 156 complaints, and not one of them was substantiated. And part of it was because of the polit political climate at the time. Uh, the President of the United States was pushing back against affirmative action and naming aircraft carriers after segregationists. And there was a high point for the anti-Martin uh, Luther King movement, et cetera. So the leadership at the top really does set the tone for what's going to happen at the deck plate. Um, but what was significant, and I've never gotten an answer to this, but right after Tailhook, Tailhook happened in 91. The very next year, the Navy had 350-something complaints of discrimination, and they substantiated 78%. That's a tenfold increase over the average for all the years before that. So something happened in the leadership of the Navy that says, we are going to take these complaints seriously. Uh, you don't go from 7% to 78% without some external influence having happened. I believe the answer to that is in Admiral Borda's files, but I've never been able to find out because the Navy won't share any information with me regarding that system. Interesting. So, for, so where are we today? You know, where are we today, either of you, John or, or Keith, you know, as we think about how our our branches of the military deal with discrimination and racism and diversity today, if you had to judge us, I guess, on a on a scale, our military, where, where do you think we are? Either of you can answer that. I mean, um, I'll take staff. I mean, I'm, a, uh, you know, obviously speaking on my own behalf, I'm, I'm a, you know, a GS now. Um, and so, you know, I'm part of the solution or part of the problem. And uh, I think there's a couple of pieces to the puzzle that you're talking about. One is, I would say we don't know where we're at because we don't uh, arduously and rigorously uh, publish the data. Uh, Compare it to sexual harassment, sexual assault, which is an annual report that comes out by direction of Congress. It has detailed uh, statistics and it's quite a compelling read. Uh, with numbers like 28% of women and 6% of men were sexually harassed last year. 
Um, 35% of those who filed complaints were retaliated against. Uh, I mean, those are stunning numbers. Um, and, but they sort of, and, and the report, the report itself says that, uh, the first, in fact, there's a great quote that says the first, the first bullet of the report is people don't trust the system. Um, and it says that there is a significant gap between what senior leadership thinks is happening and what's actually happening. Um, and so you would think that uh, if I read that as a senior reader, I would drop whatever was in my inbox and go after it. Uh, and, and yet we don't. And so, uh, and that's for data that we have. And then when you go look at discrimination, um, A, because we don't collect the data as we've articulated in our article about the UCMJ, and B, because there is a broad pushback uh, of, uh, well, you know, like, like they push back on the anti extremism uh, uh, edict from uh, General Middle was, uh, you know, he wasn't implying that, you know, every third person in the military is an extremist. <laughs> but the but the number should be zero, you know. There um, we go. And, uh, and so uh, whether it's political pushback, um, you can look at the you know CNO adding Kennedy's book to his reading list and taking it off. Uh, we as an institution, you know, there's, you know two separate issues. One is we're confronted with the data and we don't really uh, digest it. And then number two is if you're not confronted with the data, there's no imperative to act. Uh, it's kind of like the discussion, you know, not to be the one the one note wonder here, but uh, you know, Keith and I are sporting these beards. Um, the there is data, there's clear data that that uh, policy um, for those that have a PFB are disadvantaged in both career choices and, and statistically by uh, uh, their fit reps and their uh, you know anything that relates to their advancement. And so we know this, right? And yet. Uh, we, we wring our hands and, and decide, you know, not to change the policy. And it's just uh, frustrating that, uh, that, that, that it's not part of uh, the normal conversation every day. Or you say, you know, you hear people say, well, just, we're just not going to talk about that, right? And people need to know this. I think that, you know, I know Nick's, you know, schooled me a number of times on, you know, we have a great military. We have a great, our branches, we have one of the, we have the greatest military in the world, but we can't admit to our problems it's not going to always be great. And we're seeing that. And, and Nick reminds me of that a number of times. Uh, right. uh, things aren't always as rosy as they look. If we, if we were to look honestly at the situation, well, you just, you just look at manning levels now. I mean, all the services are 40% down. And right. I mean, I think people have had enough. I agree. I super agree. Right. And then when people leave and then they go and tell their friends back in high school, what their experience was, they don't want to join. Right. Yeah. right? It's not high school. Kind of change gears, but not really. So, John, you, you have an interesting background, and and you know you you, uh, you grew up in North Georgia, and I was reading some of information, and and you, you talked about in an interview you did with I think you did the interview with Keith actually last year, and you were talking about growing up on with East Side High School in North Georgia, and your community was predominantly black, and West Side was whiter, um, but you attended a private school, and and I the story intrigued me because you mentioned that you would drive through the black neighborhood on your way to school and you had a Confederate license plate and you would go to school. That's just your life. And that you never really talked to a black person. Um, and not because you didn't want to, but just because it never happened. Uh, right. until you're about 18 or 19. So I'm wondering today, as you look back at your young self at that time, what was your mindset around black people in general? And what is it today? You know, people change and I'm just curious 
because I find it striking that you lived in North Georgia, you drove through a black neighborhood, you had a Confederate flag on your truck and you never spoke to black people. And I'm wondering if that you said it was because you never have. And I just wonder what your mindset was about black people generally then and what it, well, and when did it change? That's, that's a great question. I, I almost I would almost answer that I didn't have a mindset because I didn't think about it. You know, um, I uh, went to, my mom was a teacher, so I got free tuition to the private school. And so, uh, you know, I looked at my yearbook the other day, just to confirm it, and, and, you know, not a single black student the entire four-year, you know, high school. Uh, my church, uh, I found out later we had one black member of the church, um, and then he was sitting in the back. He was actually a deacon, but he would sit in the back and, uh, and participate, Southern Baptist Church. Um, and I found out later from my sister, who, uh, you know, continued after I left, that he had been pulled aside and asked to find a different church, right, uh, by the God-fearing Southern Baptist of, of rural Georgian, you know. Um and so when I went to the Naval Academy, uh, it was pretty, you know, non-diverse at the time. This is 1980. Uh, and so I think we had one black person uh, in our, our 90-man company um, on a different floor. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, I just, uh, it wasn't like I avoided it. It's just it wasn't part of the world that I lived in. And so, uh, and, and but, you know, uh, fast forward, I don't know, 40 years, um, the high school that was not the one that I went to, but the one that was that my neighbors went to in my neighborhood in Rome, Georgia, was in the news again because if you remember, there was an article where the uh, uh, there were white students driving around the pep rally in pickup trucks with rebel flags yelling racial slurs, uh, and the black student protested the next day by by stepping out of class, and then they were kicked out of school. Right, wow. so that's my hometown. Forty years later. Uh, which is one of the reasons I left, by the way. But um, I think the difference is that, uh, you know, I, as I said in the Navy, I think I, I think I said it, I'm not sure I lived it, that uh, I don't have black sailors, white sailors, male and female sailors. I just have sailors. Uh, and uh, and so that's kind of the way that I approach things. And I think that the problem with that is, is you, you sort of gloss over the fact that there are differences. And there's things that, you know, that Joy had to worry about when she was in the military that I never had to. You know, um, I had an article uh, not too long ago uh, about nail polish. I don't know if I sent that to you guys. Uh, but why why do we have regulations about what color nail polish you can wear? Uh, and, you know, why do men One of my care? favorite I, things when I got uh, out was to yeah. be able to do nail um, stuff. <laughs> but but that, that, that's a big, I mean, my wife obsesses over her nail polish color, you know. Um, and to, to have that choice be made for you um, by men, um, I never had to think about that. What kind of earrings? And I think one of my friends is, is pretty excited. She can wear diamond stud earrings now for the first time. You know, yeah. so we're starting to make those. Nick, back to your question: Is we are making incremental progress in ways that we never have before, um, whether it's hairstyles or jewelry or polish or whatever. Um, but uh, I'm not sure whether those are driven by a true want to do better. Or just by the pragmatism that if we don't do that, we're going to lose, you know, we're going to have more banding problems. That's always my worries. Are they doing it for the right reason? <laughs> right. Right. At the end of the day, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't matter all that much if it's the reason, but, but, uh, but if you don't explain the reason, um, it's kind of like this beer discussion. It's not really a racial issue. It's a readiness issue. It just so happens that the people affected happen to be of one race. Um, and, uh, uh, so if, if I'm Keith, it is a racial issue, right? Uh, you know, pregnancy is not a gender issue, except the fact that men don't get pregnant. Uh, 
So uh, you can look at it both ways. Now, I'm monopolizing the talk here. But, no, no, thank no, you. No, this, no. The this, reason this, I yeah. asked about your, your, your childhood and kind of when the, when the light went off in your brain about, you know, noticing the difference around black people. Because in, in your article, you, you, you said, you know, I, I drove through this neighborhood and, and you said I had a Confederate flag on my Right. Well, just to put that in context, I didn't know if you knew uh, what that so was it, at the time or what have you. So, so you know, kind of goes to our school system. If you go to school in the South, the uh, the, 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 the uh, you know, the Civil War wasn't about slavery; it was about you know, states' rights and and fighting for our you know for our state. Um, I, and I'll caveat that second time that you know I am and, and was at the time uh, a huge Leonard Skinner fan. Uh, of their music and their uh, and their songs and uh, and their symbol was a Confederate flag. You look back at their stuff, every T-shirt, everything. And so, I my my you know I, we had I don't think I've even mentioned this the, the shed that we built in the backyard where we used to party had a Confederate flag the size of the painted on the ceiling. Well, this right. is all that's why um, I asked. This is lived experience, right? Like this is it is right. um, better. This is but, a, but, when I grew up. I, you know, I I was a big Dukes of Hazard fan. Yeah. I mean, right, me too. Right, but I think also it's an education piece. It's an understanding piece uh, that uh, that I, you know, uh, I won't do that now. You know, um, and uh, you know, uh, the good thing about I mean, ignorance is I think I was kind of ignorant. You know, uh, but that's not an excuse. But I can't go back and change the past either. But I can learn from. It. There are re- there are reasons and not excuses, and you're willing to learn. And that's why I asked. I think that's a great story to tell, and you put it out there. And I think people should hear that, right? I didn't know any better. This is what I knew, but this is what well, I, I know used now. to think about motorcycles. Yeah, I always tell the story about my Harley Davidson. Like whenever I had. You know, I used to get high blood pressure as a kid when I saw the Harley Davidson sign because I was taught that they were all racist gang bang- gang members. And they didn't like <laughs> black people, and I didn't like them. Like anybody I saw with the Harley, I, I at a teenager, I just wanted to fight. Or I, right, like, because I was taught yeah. that I was conditioned yeah. to think that way. Well, um, you know, stereotypes can cut both ways too. That's yeah. that's great. I love Harleys today. My wife won't let me have one. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm such a bad driver. I don't need to be on a motorcycle. That's, that's me too. <laughs> well, Nick, do we have a listener question today? We do. We, we do. Let's get got, to our on, listener I gotta, question. I got to pull up my phone here and, and find where I had it sent to me. So, so. Uh, to our listeners, uh, we keep keep bringing questions to us at info at toprankedtalentsolutions.com, our long name. Keep keep your keep your questions coming. Uh, and, Nick, what do we got? So, Andy from here in middle of nowhere, Iowa, Cedar Rapids, has a question for the two of you. And we can answer this too because we're we love this because we're similar too, right? Making, but how does it work in the space as a white man and a black man working together and leveraging back and forth? We kind of talked about it a little bit already, but how does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you that um, for me, <clears throat> for me, it is a one hundred percent plus because I can talk to John about things and. Sometimes I come across as having a chip on my shoulder, as is said. What I can tell you is that there are thousands and thousands of people who agree with me who would never do what I'm doing because they have to worry about feeding their family. They have to worry about retaliation. They have to worry about, you know, all sorts of things. I'm in a position where I can say things that people will reach out to me privately and tell me. John can take what I say and put it in context so that it's not so uh, threatening or angering to a guy that looks like him, 
Well, what Keith is really trying to say is this. So he's like my white man translator. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, President Obama had Luther, the anger translator, yeah. uh-huh. but Beyond is my white man translator. Yeah. So that works for me. And uh, What's your new name, Nick? That's my new name. I'm <laughs> <laughs> angrier than you sometimes. I don't know. Oh, I know. <laughs> One of the things that I find interesting, and I'm just going to lay this out here because that's what I do. I have gotten more support from John as a white man just entering this space than I have from people that have that look like me that will privately tell me, keep doing what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, senior black officers. It's almost as though they're afraid to acknowledge that what I say is true. Mm-hmm. When you can read a book put out by the uh, Naval War College about the first 50 black flag officers, and they talk about their own experiences. Some of them were much worse than anything that I endured, but they don't want to talk about it publicly. There's one, uh, Admiral Haney, I met him in Annapolis when I was at the uh, 50th anniversary of the NNOA uh, anniversary. He bought two copies of my book. We sat beside each other. We talked. Uh, he was, he, there was an article in the Washington Post about the discrimination he faced, and we had a great conversation. Um, I don't know that he's going to blurb the new book. He said that he would. He bought two copies of the book, which I thought was great. I tried to give them to him, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that to you. You know, I'm going to pay you for these books. So we'll see how that uh, how that translates. But I've talked to a number of uh, senior black officers, active duty and retired, and there's a reluctance to come out behind me and say, hey, this guy isn't out there all by himself. He's just running his mouth because everybody else is, is unwilling or unable to do so. Exactly. That happens a lot. And I think you're almost... Um... In the military, like I'm, I'm reflecting on my military career, and I feel like you're almost conditioned as an airman. Like, I mean, if you think about it, we we come up on a, a ram where you can't even talk about the president when he's in office, right? Like, like we don't talk about that. But even the fact that when you're active duty, you can get in trouble for criticizing the the system that you're operating within, right? And so I think because of that, it is innately in us where. Like there was a long time, there was a couple years probably before I was like, oh, I can outwardly say my political opinion now? Oh, <laughs> oh in, in let addition. Me, let, me, huh? let me give you an example that drives that home. There's a guy named Stuart Scheller that came out on active duty criticizing the military, and he was kind of over the top. There's another guy that wrote a book about Marxism, et cetera, et cetera, Matthew Lohmeyer. Both of those guys were invited to leave the service, as I understand it. And now imagine if a black person on active duty comes out and starts talking about uh, the Navy's hiding discrimination, the military's hiding discrimination complaints. They're not addressing racism. We, we are right now at this head in the sand mentality. We want to pretend like everything is okay when it's not. Back in the Vietnam era, this general was quoted in Newsweek or one of those major magazines saying that the Army had solved the racism problem. It was a few weeks later that all these race riots broke out on the uh, on the military bases. Exactly. So exactly. We are facing another period of denial and uh, and uh, deflection. So you, right. you, each of you can answer this off off for of you military folks here. I'm the only non-military one, but when we we no, talk about militant. I'll buy that a few days a week. Um, having said that, though, do 
is retaliation more prevalent in the military, in the armed services than it is in like corporate America? That re it seems listening to you all that retaliation is like pretty much just expect expected in the military. There's, there's yeah, it's not even called. Yeah, there's not. It's not even called retaliation. It's like literally, you can't. It's literally in the uniform code of military justice. Some of the things that you can and can't do, right? So it's not even. You don't even feel that it's retaliation because you're just taught from the very moment you go in and you learn your core values that you know you you don't do these things. You don't. We don't talk about Bruno. That's a for if you guys watch cartoons. That's. A, <laughs> Right. Right. And then, no, no, it's from uh, uh, Encanto. I'm talking Navy. I thought you were talking about Bruno from Papa. No, I'm I'm talking Disney. And the number one complaint that people have about coming forward reporting discrimination is retaliation. It's been that way forever, uh, and it will continue to be that way because retaliation goes unpunished. Yes. There's a very famous case in the Coast Guard, uh, Lieutenant Commander uh, uh, Kimberly McLear. She uh, complained about sexual harassment and racial discrimination, was retaliated against. Nobody was punished. She had to go outside the uh, outside the, the uh, military strictures to get some help with the uh, DODIG, and she testified in front of Congress. And to this day, no one's been held accountable for what happened to her. I've had experiences with retaliation since I retired from the military. I won't get into it right now, but I'm two years into uh, a, a Navy doctor being angry because I was writing about stuff that I write about, and he accused me of uh, circumventing their system and, and scheduling myself for a biopsy without his knowledge or permission, which everyone I've talked to says is absolutely ludicrous. But that's what he accused me of while I was laying on the exam table getting ready to have a prostate biopsy. I wow. filed a uh, formal complaint with the, with the uh, hospital. I filed an IG complaint when that went nowhere. I filed a TRICARE grievance and that went nowhere. They said my complaint did not rise to the level of a grievance. Wow. But the same day they got my the same day they got my complaint that morning, that afternoon I had a letter in my mailbox from the hospital saying that I had done nothing wrong and the error was on their part. So it took me doing all three of those things to get my name cleared. And then I filed a, a FOIA request wanting to know why they had a safety stand down in that department based on something that happened to me, what was said about me that I did or did not do. And I've been waiting for more than 60 days for that to be released to me. It's all been uh, it's all been approved, but they won't release it to me. So something's going on there. Uh, and I don't think I have to worry too much about retaliation because I think they know now I keep a sharp knife in my back pocket. <laughs> but <laughs> what, they, what you need to understand is not everyone will put themselves through what I did uh, to try to get to the truth, because I learned the hard way that these things can come back and bite you years later when you're least expected. So I want to be clear that if there was any retaliation that took place, anything that was said that I did or didn't do, I want to have those documents in my hand. They've got 30 pages of stuff that I wrote about what happened, and I get one little letter saying that I did nothing wrong. 
but everything else is kind of out there buried in the uh, file somewhere. I'm entitled to that and I expect to see it. Most people won't do that because they won't come after you for your complaint. They'll come after you for being five minutes late for work or for not getting this done on time or for whatever else it might be. It's not directly related to what you were complaining about, but it is in response to what you were complaining about. And that's why people don't come forward because they know that they have a target on their back. Well, I'll just add that uh, I think one thing about, you know, I don't know. I, I, well, I mean, I was in the private sector for a while and, uh, and I, I don't know that there's that much difference. I, I tell a story, you know, I told Steve before, I was buying a car uh, at one of the local vendors, and uh, the gentleman that came up to me was black, and he was a, a veteran. And uh, and I asked him, I said, hey, you know, you've been out for a couple of years, you were in for seven. Um, what's the biggest difference between the, you know, the military and the civilian? And without hesitation, he said racism. And I said, wow, was it that bad in the military? He said, no, no, it was much better. It's worse out here. It's like, there's no way that I would have gotten you as a customer if my boss wasn't busy with somebody else, right? Uh, and so, you know, that was one data point. But the other piece I think that, that uh, is subtle in the military is I can retaliate pretty strongly without anybody really knowing. Um, you yeah. know, not to get into great details, you all have an evaluation system where they tell you that a three is a good number on a scale of five. But that doesn't really mean that when, when it's a selection board and if you don't have straight fives um then you're not selected and so i, I one of my friends uh you know an example of uh, with the beard policy is uh he had chief petty officer with a beard because of his uh, skin condition um and they give him a three in military bear uh, and he's like my uniform i'm fit i'm physically fit i'm in good mm -hmm. shape I, I have, you know my uniform is spotless and they said yeah but that beard just doesn't look perfection Right. Mm -hmm. um, so not a word written in the eval about the people. This is in the in the verbal data. But when that goes to the board, if you if you want to make chief and you have a three out of five in, in military bearing, um, you're dead you in can, the water. You can but hang then, it up. But then no one can prove retaliation, right? And so, you know, do I give you a Navy commendation medal or a Navy achievement medal or, or or no award at all? No one's going to know. But but the absence of one at the end of a tour will speak volumes to a selection. My, my, my first eval was a four. I was actually, I won't even say I was livid because I don't even think I understood what it meant. And at the time, the staff sergeant who gave it to me, who was, was less, I mean, and this isn't me, this is other people that saw when I got a four were like, okay, that's only because you are more skilled than the person doing it writing it for you and he had got a four and his his argument to me was that well you don't have anywhere to grow if i gave you a five you probably deserve a five but then you don't have anywhere to grow which really when it came time for promotion which is that your income which is award opportunities everything that impact and it, and it i didn't know at the time because again air force is a little different like navy and army you all do a better job of setting up your mentorship, right? Like you're, you're, somebody's going to be on that floor looking out for your seamen and for your Air Force. It's, it's a, a lot of times it's more like I'm going to nine to five, right? Like, I mean, it, you're on your own. So like you don't really see your, at that point, I didn't really, I was closer to a lot of my, um, my, my army, um, um, supervisors and my Navy supervisors because I didn't often see my Air Force evaluator until it was time for my evaluation, right? And so I got, and so I didn't know or have somebody to advocate for me in that way. Now, retrospect, I understand that 
again, even that has like undertones of being a woman, of being all of these other things. Whereas, you know, so I wasn't pegged to be the person that rose up quick to the ranks. I remember um, in, um, when I went to leadership school, I, I, I wanted John Levito, which is a big deal in leadership school because typically it's these buff guys and your special force and your all of these things. And so here I was like Intel troop that didn't even, you know, and I wanted, and I, I think I even, I was pregnant even at the time. So just, it was, and you could literally see on some of my, um, and some of my, my peers faces that they were like, you picked the black girl. <laughs> I'm like, really? Like, huh? The pregnant black girl who's like five, four, she's five, seven in heels, but she's like, five, four, she's a little round. I was even more round then. I was pregnant at the time. This is who's going to represent our class. And so you, but again, when you're going through it, you don't feel it in that, like you don't realize microaggressions that macro, you don't realize you're just like, oh, and even my first achievement medal I got because of an army sergeant who was supervising another area. And he just would see me coming to work and was like, no one's put you in for an award. I see you here all the time. You're not supervising. You're doing the work of somebody beyond your stature. Your leadership is going to put you in for an award. And then he went over to my leadership and was like, you will write her up for a medal. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that's yeah. allyship. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Right, right? yeah. yeah. No, that's awesome. I just want to make Air Force jokes, but we always tell Auntie for Luke when we make fun of each other. I know, I know. Air Force evals are like what your posture in the chair was, and I'm like, <laughs> Nick, since you outnumber me right now, I'll let you, I'll let you have it. I'll let you have it. <laughs> And, and thank you, Keith. You know, we could go all day on the show, um, but as we as we as we wrap up here, I think what I've learned and what we hope our listeners have learned is there is open challenges with with issues of racism today in the military in the four branches, and we have folks on this show who all of you have been in the military for decades and have seen this. And you've seen it then and you see it now. So it's important that we bring that to light. As we close out, I would ask either of you, John or Keith, uh, any any words of advice for, for military leaders or folks that can help change and help help us? I know we're, we feel helpless, uh, but we're all, all four of us are on this call for a reason. Any, any words of advice on what we can do? As we, as I'll, 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 I'll let Keith have the last word, but uh, I'll, I'll start with two things I've learned from him. Uh, uh, listen and, and read. Um, so, you know, one of the things that Keith always, uh, uh, day doesn't go by that he doesn't send me a book to read. Um, and I have a stack of them, you know, literally sort of on my shelf. Um, but they're books that wouldn't have come to my attention. You know, the one that really, the latest one that really hit me was uh, one called Five Smooth Stones. Have you guys seen that or heard that? No, I haven't. So this is a basic story about, is it set in like the 1940s? Uh, so it's kind of modern times, but the, uh, it's a young black man growing up. His father is killed in a lynching, uh, and then he becomes an activist. And he, at the end of the story, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, but he meets a similar fate. Um, but it goes through the, the fact that, you know, unlike me, who was driving to school and, and felt safe, um, you know, under the segregational laws and the Jim Crow laws, he could be killed by a bus driver um, without retribution, you yeah. know. Um, and it just never occurred to me. And I'm reading this book, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, sort of relating to this person um, um, who had to put up with stuff that I would have never, you know, I had to be up every morning wondering whether he was going to come back home alive, you know. 
And so uh, reading books like that uh, to open your eyes. And then sitting down and listening, you know, this my whole activism from this beer topic came from sitting with three Navy personnel who told me horror stories about their own experiences uh, and uh, and how they had been literally discriminated against. And, and the best quote was, uh, you know, back to your question, was, hey, uh, if you're being discriminated against by your boss, it's not your advantage to point it out. Uh, this is what a Navy chief better officer told. And so, uh, you know, the, the two things, you know, the only way you, you don't learn while you're running your mouth, you learn while you're reading and you learn while you're listening. And that would be my, uh, and listen to people that had a different background. That would be my final thought. Thanks, John. Keith? My thought is when you hear someone talking like me uh, or or like John or somebody saying that, you know, the, the South was about, you know, states' rights, et cetera, ask yourself, what is it that I don't know about this situation and how can I learn more about it? Because you have to take yourself outside of your comfort zone to understand where other people are coming from. Unless you can put yourself in their shoes and understand why they feel the way they do, you're never going to be able to relate to that person. Yes. I have a book on my bookshelf right now written by two brothers. And the title of the book is The South Was Right. It's got a big Confederate flag on it. And they go through all the reasons why it wasn't about, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just kind of pick those arguments apart and I compare it to other stuff that I've read and I do some research. So if I ever had a conversation with those guys, I'm able to point out, well, what you said here isn't entirely accurate. So why did you say it this way? And what is it about what I'm saying that you find not to be true? So you got to start with a baseline. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have the same baseline, you're just going to talk past each other. Find something that you can agree on and then work your way forward from there. But if you're never going to agree on the basic facts, the basic issues, Keith has a chip on his shoulder. Okay, I will own that. I will own that I have a chip on my shoulder. Now, let's go back and unpack why Keith might have a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, exactly. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Speaks right up our alley. To yeah, about we talk issues. a lot about uh, informed expression versus uninformed expression. And, exactly. And, and getting to root getting issues. to the why. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, John. Joy to take us out here. We appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. Again, I was so excited for the show today because I felt like it was going to give such a different perspective that people don't think about as um, I, I want to thank both of you, all three of you. Thank you for your service, because I understand um, the sacrifice that it, it takes to defend our nation. And democracy has a price, right? Even in the times where democracy may have not been afforded to you, when I think about some of the things that you've done, Keith, Democracy has a price and you've been willing to pay that price. And John, you've been willing to pay that price. And Nick, you've been willing to pay that price. And, and so you. I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Not, no, not as much as you all, but thank you so much. I just appreciated being able to stand on your shoulders. And uh, again, so thank you. This has been an excellent episode. And please, everyone, be on the lookout. Um, keep an eye on our social media for future episodes of Breaking Barriers, the DEIB podcast. We're going to be dropping them every month. We're going to have more great conversations like this to give you just different insights into the world of DEIB and how you can do some of the great information from our guests and take it back to your own organizations. Yep. 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 Thank you both again. Um, big shout out to our five-star presenting sponsor, Kirkwood Community College. We appreciate your partnership on this podcast. Also a big thanks to our silver sponsor, PG Cares. Also want to give thanks to our friends of Breaking Barrier supporters, Community Savings Banks and Tyler Link and Barnes DDS. 
we'd love to hear from you. Hit us up with your questions, comments, suggestions, ideas, critiques, whatever, to info at toprankedtalentsolutions.com. Yep. Thank you. A special thanks to our listeners. We, we would not be here without you. Please like and share. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you share it with a friend. Uh, we're trying to give lessons out here. So thank you all for your time. Let's all continue to break barriers together. Yep. Let's break some barriers. Thank you. It was great. Thank you. Take care. Take care, y'all. Thanks. Advancing equity is not a one-year project. It's a generational commitment. There are too few people in the world willing to be the domino, too few people willing to take that fall.